Welcome to Truth Encounter and today's question, how should we react to an adulteress who comes to hear about Jesus? What did the Savior do with a progressive woman who has had five husbands and now shacks up with another man without any of the formalities of a ceremony? Join us as Dave answers this question from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. She actually does have a reputation because in her lifetime she has had five husbands. That's a lot. And they didn't die. You know, well, we don't really know what happened to them. We don't know whether she ran them off or, you know, what happened. But in her life she's had five husbands. And, you know, when you get up into middle age and you've had five husbands, you know, all the rigmarole of going down to the court, all the rigmarole of ceremonies, I mean, it just gets plain expensive after five weddings. So she decides in middle age, let's just forget all the paraphernalia, all the, you know, all the red tape, and so she's just shacking up with a guy now. You thought that was a modern reality, kind of a modern problem that just developed? Well, it isn't. Now, why don't you just imagine that this woman with a reputation like that, that's had five husbands, she's now shacking up with a guy, suddenly, Sunday morning, in the side doors, across the back, all the way down, almost to the front, walks you know who. Suddenly, praise turns to worships, the beautiful kind of tails off, and all over the auditorium you can hear. And things like, who in the world let her in? How could she ever dress like that? I mean, who does she think she is coming to Midlothian Bible Church dressed like that? One of the dads says, I thought I joined this family of believers to expose my kids to good people, the healthy people, the people that have their morals together. I'm just going to wait and see how they deal with this. I mean, how long will they let someone like that in this place? Now, I'm not saying that we would react like that. But the question I do want us to ask, because I think it focuses very much as we study about the life of Christ and trying to answer the question, what is Jesus actually like? How does he relate to people? How does he feel about people? How does Jesus relate to a woman with a reputation like that? And the question that the Lord asked me as I learn about how he relates to someone that has a reputation like that is he begins to say, Dave, are you opening yourself to me? Are you allowing my attitudes to become your attitudes? You see, I think what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn about not just the reality that somebody can have an immoral lifestyle, they can go in and out of relationships, they can have affairs one after the other, but in John chapter 4, we're going to learn the inner dynamics of why somebody has five relationships. Why all of their life? They're in and out, breaking relationships, involved in immorality. And in John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus has a conversation with a woman with a bad reputation, and yet Jesus had the time to interact with her. Let's look at John chapter 4, and the chapter begins with an introduction in verses 1 through 3. And it ties us back into the, into the earlier chapters that we've been studying as we've come through the life of Christ, we've been camped in Judea. If you don't know where that is, that's the county, you might say, around the city of Jerusalem. 
It's the hotbed in the first century of Judaism. It's where the major colleges are, where the major seminaries are, where the major religious leaders are. And we've been, for the last several weeks, seeing Jesus cleaning out the temple, being attacked viciously by the Jewish leaders, and yet in the midst of all this conflict with the Jewish leaders, we saw that he had time for an individual conversation with one of those Jewish leaders. Well, John the Apostle reminds us of this interaction and this conflict that Jesus is having with the Jewish leaders. He mentions in verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord, one of the few times in the Gospel of John that he refers to Jesus as the Lord, but it's a subtle reminder that he truly is the Lord God, the ultimate sovereign that came into this planet. And John chapter 1 informs us that he's the creator. In him, everything was made. So he truly is the Lord. When the Lord, that is Jesus, learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now this is one of those transition passages where the, John is beginning to build a theme and some themes that we need to be alert to as we're studying the book of John. We've just finished studying the Lord's first Judean ministry. Some of the conflict that's arising is a tremendous jealousy from the Jewish leaders. A tremendous fear that Jesus will become so popular and so dynamic among the people that their place, their temple, their worship will be jeopardized. And rather than opening their heart like Nicodemus was willing to do and listen carefully to what Jesus had to say, these Pharisees, as the book develops, are going to intensify in their hatred. They're going to intensify in their jealousy. And in the end, at, and when we get into the passion narrative, this whole thing is going to flame together and they're going to crucify the Messiah. So that theme of, of conflict and the problems that Jesus had with religious leaders is right here at the very beginning as he initiated his public ministry in Judea. Now as we begin to move north from Judea up into Galilee, there are some country people, some people a lot like a lot of us, some people that are away from some of the cities, we're away from some of the centralizations of power. And out in the country where Jesus was raised, there's some common everyday people that fall in love with him, that are willing to listen to him. And maybe because of their background, they were able to humble themselves and really open their heart to receive him. And in order to get from Judea up into Galilee, where we're going to be camped as we begin to look at Jesus' Galilean ministry, Jesus went straight north and he walked through Samaria and he came to a city called Sychar where Jacob's well was. And that's the setting that's introduced in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about 12 o'clock noon, about the sixth hour. I want just to, just to cause you to focus in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria. John uses a word which stresses divine necessity. It stresses the idea that God has a plan. 
that God is working, that meetings that we have with people, introductions and, and meals that we might have with somebody or being thrown into a job situation with somebody or being in school with somebody, John uses a word which means that Jesus had a divine appointment with an individual. And I just want to underline in your own thinking, you know, it's easy to think of God being way up there somewhere and you're just kind of living your life by happenstance. It's kind of like the throw of the dice on a Las Vegas game table. And I want every one of us to realize that that is not so. Every one of our lives are being orchestrated in a mysterious way. It's not a manipulative way. It's not that God takes away our choices. But there's a great author in heaven who is designing our life in order to touch lives. Our worship together should remind us that we have divine appointments, that things are not just happening. The eternal Son of God had to go through Samaria. He had to take that walk, and he had to do it because the Lord loved a certain individual. And I think one thing we could do is to pray that we would meet some of those individuals this week. And that's a kind of an idea that the Apostle John wants us to understand because we are following in the footsteps of Jesus and he is continuing to work through us to meet people's needs. And I believe that this chapter reveals to us that we can get involved in the deepest needs, some of the hardest problems. And we definitely need to do that as a group of believers. And that's what John 4 is about. Jesus had a divine appointment to walk through Samaria. In verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew? Are you a Jew and you, you ask, Drink of me that's a Samaritan? And then John gives us, in case you don't get the point, John mentions, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now what's going on? Jesus is tired from the journey, which showed us that he was so divine he could create the universe, but he was so human that he could become tired. He could become worn down. It's 12 o'clock. You've been walking a long way, several miles, up through the mountains. I've ridden that by bus, and when I rode it by bus, I was thirsty. In fact, when I was at Jacob's well, Mary almost lost her husband because our guide said, now be sure you stay right around the well, and uh, I walked down the road a little bit in the blues, and suddenly an Israeli came up over this wall with a machine gun and says, What are you doing? I said, Sir, I'm just walking. He says, Well, walk back to your group. And I said, Yes, sir. <laughs> when a guy's got a, an Uzi or whatever the, the Israeli soldiers use, you walk back to your group. And uh, Jacob's well is still there, and I was hot and thirsty because it's a long way from Jerusalem up through the mountains of Samaria up to that well and it's still there today. But what's going on here is a very important interaction. For one, men in the first century didn't talk to women. That's one. Not if they could help it. Especially Jewish men. There's another major separation that took place. Jesus was a Jewish person. The woman that came out was not only a woman, but she wasn't a Jewish woman. She was a Samaritan woman. 
And there was a real neat conflict going on between Jews and Samaritans for one reason. The Samaritans were the half-breeds that were settled in by the Assyrian Empire when the Assyrians conquered the Jews back in the 8th century. So 800 years earlier, the beginning of a mixed race was planted right in this area. This was one of the hotbeds of the Samaritan group. Second of all, John Hyrcanus, a very sweet Jew, went up on Mount Gerizim, which you can see from Jacob's well, and that's where the Samaritans had a temple. They believed that you needed to worship on Mount Gerizim. And John Hyrcanus knocked their temple down. Now in the first century, a temple would be cared for and loved much more than we would ever care for a building, much more than we should ever care for a building because God is not worshipped in places, He's worshipped in the heart. But the Samaritans and the Jews had a running conflict over where are we going to worship God. The Samaritans said it's at Mount Gerizim. The Jews said it was in Jerusalem. And Hyrcanus came up and said, you're not going to be able to worship on Mount Gerizim. I'll knock your temple down. That happened about a hundred years before Christ walked up the well up to, to the well of Sychar. So you've got tremendous problems. It's kind of like a white person going to Harlem on Saturday night about two o'clock and going to have a nice sweet time of interaction between the races. It would be like an Israeli going to the West Bank and you're going to have a nice sweet picnic with your family. There's tension in the air when it's like that. Now what I want you to understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ did something incredible. You know what he did? Look at the text and see what he did. What did I just read? What did he do? He said, could I have a drink? Isn't that earth shaking? Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. You know where the witnessing begins? You know where bearing the light for Jesus begins? It begins with, could I please have a drink? You say, what in the world are you talking about? How many of you have ever been in a social situation where you sat next to somebody and nobody said, boo? How many of you find it hard when you don't know somebody to initiate a conversation? How many find that a little bit hard? I do. All the extroverts in the audience say, no, I don't have any trouble at all with that. All the introverts say, yeah, it's a little bit hard. It's hard for me. You know, I've, I've often joked with you about the airplane is a great place to see this. I mean, here you are. You can't even put your elbow up on the chair without hitting the person next to you. I mean, that's the big thing in an airplane. Who's going to get to use the armrest? <laughs> and you have to negotiate that. It's amazing. I've watched on the plane. People can sit there for two hours and never say anything. Nobody ever says anything. Now, some people are bubbling. You know, they're talking away. But you'll never be able to witness to somebody. You see, Jesus doesn't ooze into the next chair and say, Christ died for your sins. Christ rose again from the dead. This person sitting next to you really knows that. If you'll talk to them, they'll be able to tell you. That never happens. You know where witnessing begins? It begins with, can I have a drink? Where do you work? Where are you from? Do you have any kids? 
That's where it all begins. You don't start, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? If you just think of it, if you were an unbeliever and somebody started in with you like that, what would you think? Man, we've got a space cadet next to us. And yet that's what believers do. We're going to go witnessing. We sit there. Boy, when am I going to get the courage to do this? And then we lay one on them. Are you prepared to die? You know, you've all heard about the barber. That's a great one on a plane, really. It's a great one. <laughs> what Jesus is telling us is, you know, I think a lot of believers have trouble with witnessing because they have a hard time in conversation. I think a lot of us just need to take time out and just learn how to have a normal, everyday conversation. And realize, hey, the Son of God related to people. He was thirsty. He sat down at a well. And he's going to tell her the most incredible good news in just a minute that you could ever hear. But he starts out by saying, can I have a drink? We can all do that. By the way, by getting into a relationship where someone's been able to do an act of kindness for you opens up lots of doors. It breaks a lot of resistance down. And I love the way she reacts. You get a lot of insight into her character. I mean, this woman's straightforward. She just shoots right from the hip, you know, right what she's thinking. She says, you mean to tell me you're a Jew? You're going to ask me for a drink? Underneath, I can hear her saying, don't you know it's going to make you unclean? Don't you know you're going to have to do all kinds of rituals to get rid of the, the, the dirtiness that us Samaritans supposedly have? Because the Jews actually thought you would, that you would become unclean spiritually. If you even touched one of these creatures, not alone, drank out of their glass. Look what Jesus says next, verse 10. Jesus answered her. I love, this is, this is where the conversation gets real interesting. First of all, could I have a drink? The interaction over breaking across racial barriers, sexual barriers, initiating a conversation. Verse 10, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks of you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We better read that again. I mean, that is a mind-blowing idea in a conversation. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God that raises that issue? And if you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, who is this person? You would have asked him to give you a drink of living water. Now, we've got lots of problems in this. First of all, Jesus asked her for a drink. Jesus doesn't have anything to draw water with. And Jesus is telling this girl, even after he opened this conversation, that he can give her a drink. Now, this is, this is really paradoxical. He begins by asking her for a drink. And she's going to get him a nice, refreshing drink if she, if she can get up the energy to do it. And Jesus goes on the conversation to say, what you really need to do is ask me for a drink. Now that raises all kinds of issues. And we get a lot of insight into carrying on conversations. You don't need to lay everything on an unbeliever all at once. Learn to talk about things. Learn to, to tease a little bit. Don't be so uptight that you need to get somebody off your back that you stop relating to them as an individual. Jesus relates beautifully to this individual. He respects her. He respects her intelligence. He mentions some very teasing things. And we're going to have the same problem that we're going to face in our own sharing of the gospel as we relate to people. This woman, just like Nicodemus, had a lot of trouble going from physical thinking to spiritual thinking. Nicodemus had a hard time going from physical birth to spiritual new birth. 
This woman has a hard time going from a cold drink of water from the well of Jacob to a cool drink of eternal water from the fountain of Jesus Christ. And I don't blame her. Because theologians for the last 1900 years have been trying to interact with all that Jesus meant by what it means for him to be the living water. So she does what most of us as human beings, as physical people do. She said, sir, verse 11, you don't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. It's over 100 feet deep. It's awfully hard to lean down and hang by your heels into that well and get a drink. It's 100 feet down. Where can you get this living water, verse 11? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Loaded question. You're telling me you can give me a drink? You don't have anything to give me a drink with. And also, let's get into the old Jewish-Samaritan conflict here. This is the Samaritan well. Jacob gave it to us. And she's starting to build up her Samaritanism. Sounds like a modern conversation. Well, I go to the first church. Well, I go to the Bible church. Well, our church has a tradition of over 200 years. Well, our church is really active. We're really involved. And back and forth we go. Religious, competitive discussion. That's the feel of what she's trying to do. That's why she brings up Father Jacob. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And so she wants to try to draw Jesus into a real nice, spiritual, competitive discussion. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't get hung up with competing over religion. Notice what he says. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We need to have a fountain within us that will well up to eternal life. Now notice what she says. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty anymore and, and, and have to keep coming here to this well. Now what is she still thinking about? Tell me. She hasn't made the transition yet from physical water to what kind of water? Spiritual water. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about this living water that we all need to take a drink from that will never thirst again? I'm going to tell you what it is. Tell you what it is. How many of you have video games? Years ago when we got Atari, Atari gave one cartridge Trivia of the week. Can anybody remember what the one cartridge was that Warner Communications gave you with Atari the first time you bought it? Combat. What's the first game that Nintendo gives you when you buy the set? Mars Brothers. Okay, all right, all right. Now, this is the question I want to ask you. How many of you that have your set more than a week have just one cartridge? All right, there's one. That's a first. All right, how many of you? There's one person here. How many of you have two cartridges? Three cartridges. Why? I'll tell you why. When we got Atari many years ago, when it first came out, get combat, you play combat. And you know what? For weeks, the kids are on me. Dad, this is going to do it for me. This is going to satisfy me. 
This is what I want. Now, they don't talk like that. They say, oh, Dad, I've got to have it. Please get it. We walk in and Toys R Us. Let's go back there. We've got to look at it. And, man, you can build it. You're really a sharp dad and mom. You say, oh, no, we've got to wait till birthday. We've got to wait till Christmas. We don't just go out and just buy something like that. So you build it up, build it up. And, man, you can keep the desires going. I mean, you can just see the Plavlov's dog saliva just beginning to come down. And, man, you get that box, you go in, man, they've got them in locked cages. I mean, people are so intense, you can't even buy these things on the shelf. You've got to go get a special card, pay the bill, and give it to a special person that keeps all of this precious stuff under lock and key. Because it's so intense, man. You take the thing home, get it out of the box, you put it in there, man, you plug in the Atari, and you put on combat, you put on the Marx Brothers, and the kids play with it for about a week. Then you know what? Dad, Mom, there's another cartridge. The kids at school, I was talking with the kids at school, there's another cartridge. You know what they're telling you? This cartridge will do it. This cartridge will meet our needs. This cartridge will give me something to look forward to. This will give me something to live for. This will make me somebody. And all of you adults go. What about when you get car fever? What about when you get house fever? What about when you get relationship fever? You see what's happening. Every one of us is born thirsty. Very, very thirsty. And all through our life, we keep trying to take a deep drink. And what Jesus is saying, see, this woman started out when she was early in life, she got into a relationship. And this husband was going to really do it. I mean, this husband was going to be a drink of water that would never run out. I mean, she had never been so excited as a young girl in all of her life. And she lived for that marriage. And then it turned out to be bitter water. It turned out to be horrible water. So she got out of it. Somebody else came along. And this person, you see, when she started to get involved in this new relationship, this new affair, she felt terrific. I mean, the water was Ozark pure. It was unbelievably exciting, really good. Then she got into that relationship, and it turned bitter, just like combat. In fact, the marriage was a lot like combat. And somebody else came along. And when somebody else came along, it was another Atari game. And it was going to work this time. It was going to meet her deepest needs. And she grabbed a hold of this next partner. And she clung to him. But it didn't last. She did that five times. Finally, she says, I'll just move in with somebody. Be easier to change him quick. Now we all go, how could anybody ever do that? That's why you do it. That's why I do it. Deep in the human soul, we are very, very thirsty. And Jesus told this woman a very profound thing. Jesus didn't say, the Bible church culture can meet your need. You can get all connected with Dallas Seminary. You can read all the books. You can go to ch women's teas. You can go to men's Bible studies. You can pray. You can do everything you, you want. Jesus never said that the Bible church culture could satisfy your needs. He didn't say that a Baptist culture could satisfy your need. 
He didn't say that getting all involved in community affairs would meet your needs. He didn't say that getting involved in your family, really being a good family person, would meet your needs. He said one thing. He said, if you knew who was talking to you, if you knew who it was that was sharing with you, you would look him in the eye and you would say, Jesus, come inside of me and become a well that springs up unto eternal life. The basic message of the New Testament is that only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus is the living water. And at the core of every one of our life, our core problem is the thing that fuels drug addiction, the thing that fuels alcoholism, the thing that fuels adultery, the thing that fuels workaholism, the thing that fuels jealousy, is the core problem of we try to take illicit drinks from the wrong fountain. And Jesus hit this woman who had such a sordid past and he said, if you really knew who I was, you would ask for a drink that wouldn't completely satisfy you all at once. That's what some of you are wrestling with. Jesus didn't say this drink will overwhelm you, that, you'll, that your thirst will forever end right then. He talks about a spring that's initiated and then it bubbles up inside of you and it bubbles up onto eternal life. It talks about a progression. It talks about a, a fountain that gets better and better and better. And I think sometimes we oversell Jesus. We say, if you come to Jesus, everything on earth will be satisfied. Everything on earth won't be any problem anymore. You'll just live giddy and, and everything will be great. Instead of saying, no, it's going to be a, a living relationship. But what Jesus will do is that rather than being like a cartridge that you get tired of and you throw it away and you got to get a new cartridge. Jesus is the one life-giving principle that when you ask Him inside, He becomes a well deep in your soul, deep in your heart, deep in your personality. And because He's actually there, as you open your personality to Him, He becomes like a spring. You know what it's like to get a good drink of water when you're thirsty? I can remember as a kid, I'd leave Saturday morning and I'd go to the ball field and play baseball all day long, especially this time of the year. I'd get up at 6 o'clock, say my BMA verses. I made a guy get up at 6.30, meet me to say my, like, Awana verses on Saturday morning so I could be at the ball field at about 7.15. I'd play all day long and I'd struggle back. And in our house, we had those old faucets. They've really gotten back in. A lot of you that are in antiques, you know, those things that have the big ivory turns and all that. And I remember I'd go into this bathroom in the kitchen and I'd turn on that cold water. And back in New Jersey, it would be cold out of the tap. And I remember getting underneath there, and that was the greatest drink of water. Man, I just would barely be making it. thought I was going to die. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying in the, in the thirstiness of your life, that he can give the living water. Now, what's the holdup? What keeps us from having this living water? Well, Jesus changes the conversation rather abruptly. In verse 16, he said to her, he told her, go call your husband and come back. 
Now, what is the answer to that question? Go call your husband and come back. How should she have answered that question? How, how would you answer that question if you were her? You're talking to the reverend, okay? You've got this kind of a past. And he says, well, hey, now why don't you go get your husband? We'll talk it over with your husband. What would be the response to that question? Okay, sure, that would be the response. You do that every day. You're in a tight one. I mean, how many of you, how many of you, they even give you a way out? You know, go get your husband. All she needed to say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be glad to. She could even brought the guy she was living with. Well, how would Jesus know the difference? I mean, I don't know the difference. I mean, you know, I do weddings sometimes these days where it takes a computer to keep the family tree straight. I don't know who's married to who and, and who's really been to the Ellis County Court and who hasn't been. All she needed to say, sure, I'll go get my husband. But she didn't. And that was a real important point. Look what she said. I don't have a husband. Truth, lie, what? It's the truth. I don't have a husband. Now, in a way, you might say, well, she kind of got out of it because now she doesn't need to get anybody. But look what Jesus says to her next. Jesus said to her, now, imagine dealing with a person like this. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not even your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, you can feel the thud in this Samaritan woman's life. Can you imagine dealing with a guy like this? He says, well, why don't you get your husband? We'll talk it over together. He says, oh, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You don't have a husband, do you? In fact, you have had five husbands. And now your present condition is you're living with a man that you're not even married to. But I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't reject that kind of a woman. Everything about what Jesus is saying he doesn't reject her. He doesn't lambaste her for her immorality. He doesn't smash her for what a bad reputation she has in the community. But you know what Jesus does do with her? And I want to share with every one of you, I don't care what kind of a past you have. I don't care what you're involved in. But Jesus will not reject you as a person. But he will demand the truth from you. What do we learn from this passage? Have you ever thought of how foolish it is to not deal with Jesus truthfully? Oh, mom and dad, I'm not on drugs. I haven't taken any drugs at all. Good. We'll do a blood test. Um, um, uh, wait about a week. I really, I'm real busy this week at school. We'll wait about a week. What are you trying to do with your mom and dad? Where were you last night? Oh, I just out with some of the guys. Where did you go? Well, we, uh, we went to Midlothian. Uh-huh. You left at 9 o'clock and you went to Midlothian? You didn't get back till 2 in the morning? What would you do in Midlothian from 9 to 2? Well, it was a long time at the gas pump. You see, the truth of the matter is the parents are the last people to find out. Just ask people that are working that. The police, people in reach, counselors. Kids, it's easy to fake out mom and dad. Mom and dad, it's easy to fake out your kids. What I want you to realize is if we're going to deal with the reality of human problem, 
One thing Jesus will demand is you've got to tell the truth. The woman of Samaria's life was touched forever by Jesus with some of the heaviest problems. If you were to ask me, Dave, what is the hope for this girl? To be honest with you, as a counselor from a human perspective, if you said, Dave, what are the hopes for the Samaritan woman? I would say, zilch. Pretty zilch. And I'm sure that almost any secular counselor that deals with this problem often, they would agree. The chance of this kind of a woman becoming new and really changing is not too good. But she changed. And the reason she changed is that she was willing to level and tell the truth to Jesus Christ. And I would challenge be very, very careful about deception. I think that's where this woman's immorality probably began. It's where all of our immorality begins. It's almost where all of our sin begins. It's the lie. It's deception. And for once in this woman's life, she didn't hedge, and she was faced with an individual who it was crazy to lie to because he knew everything about her. But notice what happened in the conversation. We're at a very intense point where Jesus has exposed her life, really hit her right in the face with what was going on. She says to him in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. That's always a good thing. You've got a good point there. You must be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, what does she want to do? She wants to get into a nice religious discussion at this point. It's gotten too close. It's gotten too intense. And whenever it gets too tight, what you want to do is to debate whether the Baptist theology is right, whether the Bible church theology is right, whether the Methodist theology is right, whether the Jews are right. You all want to get into the question is, well, how do we know? I don't really know who's right. How many of you have had conversations like that? Those conversations don't go anywhere. Because that's really not what the issue is. The issue is not whether the Bible church is right or any other church is right. The issue is what did Jesus say and do and believe and what is he telling us? And you can just take John 4. And I promise you, you can just read John 4. Just read John 3 and any idiot that can read can get the basic idea about what Jesus is saying, that you need to relate to him personally, that you need to trust in him, that you need to commit your life to him, and he will be life-giving reality to you. It's a personal thing, not a religious thing. Look how Jesus responds. Believe me, woman, my dear. It's not a slur on her at all. It's believe me, ma'am. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Anybody can read the Old and New Testaments and know that God has chosen to reveal salvation through the Jewish people. We worship a Jewish Messiah. A good way to tell whether you're in a church family that believes in the truth is they will be committed to the reality that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. If you're in a, in a religious group that doesn't really believe the truth, they're going to be communicating things like the Jews have their faith, we have our faith, other people have their faith. We all need to love one another, respect one another, because we're all going to the same place. They're even having a big rally in Dallas, a big unity rally. 
to express the solidarity. Jesus, the real Jesus, cuts right across all that. He told a Samaritan. He didn't say, well, I think it's nice you worship on Mount Gerizim. And I think it's nice that you're a Samaritan because you have your truth and I have my truth. And Jesus says to her, no. He's very loving. He's very kind. But he says salvation is of the Jews. And you Samaritans are wrong. Because God promised the Messiah not through the Samaritans, but through the Jews. And he says this. Yet a time is coming and it's now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The incredible thing that Jesus does here is he tells her salvation is of the Jews and they do have the covenants, they have the promises, they have the Messiah. But you're not excluded because the time is coming and it now is when the eternal God of the universe doesn't really want to be worshipped just in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim or any other place, any other building. He wants to be worshipped in the human heart. This is one of the most vital things that I want us to believe in this group. With all my heart, I want every one of you to be eternally committed to this. You see, the Heavenly Father is a spirit. That means he can't be located in any particular place exclusively. It means he can never be locked in. You've got to worship him in spirit. He's a spiritual being. You can't see him, but he's real. And he must be worshipped with integrity. No conning, no manipulation. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. You can't use the bargaining routine. You've got to just worship him. You've got to worship him with integrity from the depths of your soul. And Jesus told a woman who had had five husbands with that kind of an immoral life, he said, you can still worship the Father spiritually from the depths of your soul and truthfully. And then the woman said this, when the Messiah comes, then he'll tell us the truth. And Jesus looked at this woman and said, I'm the Messiah. I don't know when the woman was born again. Somewhere from that moment to while she was running back to the village, she was born again. She didn't walk an aisle. She didn't raise her hand. She didn't do anything religious. It never even tells us the exact moment. That's not what's important. What's important is that there came a split second of time when an immoral woman with a terrible past met the Messiah and she said deep in her soul with integrity and truth, yes, Jesus, I believe. You say, how do you know she believed that? She went back to the village and she told all the men in the village. And when this woman ran into a village and called out to the men, they listened. Because they all knew her name. And she told all the men, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. That's why all the men came a-running. Come see a man that tells everything that I ever did. Could this not be the Christ? Come and judge for yourself. And they all came. The disciples came back. They climbed all over Jesus. They said, what in the world are you doing talking to this woman? And Jesus said this, I have food that you don't even know about because my food is to do the will of the Father. In the chapter, this incident closes with one of the most beautiful passages in the book of John. 
Jesus there at the well of Sychar looks over the mountains back towards Sychar and hundreds of people are coming out from the village and Jesus tells the disciples the harvest is white. The Judeans down in Jerusalem were too proud. They were too religious. They were too involved in all of their affairs. All they wanted to see was a big show, a lot of miracles. And John is telling us that an immoral girl, if she walked into our church today, it might be really hard for us to accept her. But this chapter says, brothers and sisters, you've got to get right into the world intensely and work with people with sordid paths, with very deep problems, because Jesus alone is the living water that can change an immoral woman. I want you to get this. It's what we've been learning over the last several weeks, I believe, by the Spirit's guidance. He takes an immoral woman and changes her into an evangelist. Now, that's a change. He takes a woman with five husbands, and makes her to become someone that brings salvation to an entire village. Let me close with this. Can you think of a woman like that? Have you prayed for her this week? Have you invited her to, to come over so you can talk? Have you invited her to maybe to come and hear her? Something from the scripture. You see, we got it all backwards. We've got it all backwards. What we think is that you build churches on the good people. You build God's family with the upper middle class that have their lives all together. I want to share something with you. You know as well as I do. Nobody really has it together. I love what Tim Stafford says. How can such good, beautiful, nice people be so bad? Do such bad things? And the New Testament gives us the answer because we're not good people. We're all like the woman of Samaria, just we manifest it in different ways. We all have intense, illicit longings for the wrong glass of water. We run to this fountain. The young people have their fountains they're running to. The adults have their fountains. The children have their fountains. We run from one fountain to the next. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Drink from me. Let me fill your life.